Let's pray together. Father, as the choir has just sung, our lips will praise You, Jesus. Our lips will praise You. We will praise You in the tongue of our mother and our father. But we will praise You. Just a moment ago, kneeling as we all were and repeating the prayer, Holy Christ, that You gave to us, Your motto prayer. To hear the voices ascending, to hear a voice just behind me, I know not the language, but He was praying in the language He had been taught to pray. We are many languages, many nations. One God, one Holy Scripture, one truth. Let that truth be clear today, and O Christ, be lifted up in our midst. We humbly pray in Your name. Amen. I received a letter this summer from one of our Andrews University students. She graduated last spring. Writes me in the summer. I'm going to read it to you. Just a few lines. Dear Pastor Dwight, and then a couple paragraphs, chit-chat. My other reason for writing. Here we go. My other reason for writing is unfortunately about a burden I have been dealing with this last year. Someone close to me who left the church several years ago has become increasingly negative about our church. At first, it was a general anger and frustration over wrongs inflicted. I don't know what. I felt that patience and love and encouragement were the best response. However, in the last year, conversations regarding our church have become increasingly more bitter and hateful, especially involving Ellen White. My burden and heartache are not for the shaking of my own faith. My trust is in Jesus. But I am so worried about this person's hate and their potential to discourage and hurt those around them, many who are also close to me and young in faith. I feel so drained and helpless after these conversations. Are there any books, any sermons that address these kinds of accusations? Should I spend my time seeking out explanations or is it a waste of energies? Should I just let it go and trust that God will work everything to good? Any thoughts you have would be greatly appreciated. I hope this email finds you and your family well. Welcome to today's teaching. Ellen White. But what about the critics? It was Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi and scholar of the 20th century, who makes the provocative observation in his two-volume set, The Prophets. I want you to read these words. I'll put them on the screen for you. Abraham Heschel. Over the life of a prophet, words are invisibly inscribed. All flattery abandon ye who enter here. Hit the pause button for a moment. Do you know why? Because you'd have to be a fool to ever wish to be a prophet. That's why. They'll ridicule you while you're alive. They will excoriate you once you are dead. What prophet in her right mind would ever choose to be a prophet? Heschel goes on. To be a prophet is both a distinction and an affliction. The mission he performs is distasteful to him and repugnant to others. No reward is promised him and no reward could temper its bitterness. The prophet bears scorn and reproach. He is stigmatized as a madman by his contemporaries and by some modern scholars as abnormal. Crazy. 
Welcome to the world of Ellen White. In 1883, in a letter to the editor, Uriah Smith, with striking and vulnerable candor, writes these words. You see them on the screen. Why do you remain as silent as the dead? She's obviously under attack. Why isn't he saying something? Why do you remain as silent as the dead? Is this the way you defend the truth? Truth will triumph. I expect that the raid, the attack, will be made against me till Christ comes. Every opposer to our faith makes Mrs. White his text. They begin to oppose the truth and then they make a raid against me. Why, I ask, is all this zeal against me? I'm watched. Every word I write is criticized. Every move I make is commented upon. I leave my work and its results until we gather about the great white throne. End quote. I'll let God be the judge. What did Heschel write? All flattery abandon ye who enter here. Does that mean we can't investigate and can't, we can't challenge the writings of the prophet? Hardly. In 1897, Ellen White wrote, Every charge should be carefully investigated. It should not be left in any uncertain way. The people should not be left to think that it may be or it may not be. The people must not be left to believe a lie. They must be undeceived. Hence today's teaching. Ellen White. But what about the critics? Open your Bible with me, please, to a passage you haven't read perhaps ever in your life. Came across it this last week. I've been brooding on this. I want you to take a look at this. The book of Ecclesiastes. We'll go back to the Old Testament. The book of Ecclesiastes. You didn't bring a Bible? Grab the pew Bible in front of you. You need to see this. It's in the Bible. You need to see it. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. If you have the pew Bible, that would be page 454. I'm in the New King James Version, which is what the pew Bible is as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Right near the end of this pensive brooding reflection by the wise King Solomon who has turned melancholy near the end of his life. He writes these words. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. He's talking about himself. In this translation, he calls himself the preacher. If you have the NIV, he calls himself the teacher. He's talking about himself. Watch this, verse 9, Ecclesiastes 12. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, all right, He still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright words of truth. Unbeknown to the reader, Solomon has just described for us how under divine inspiration he put the book of Proverbs together. He said, well, big deal, Dwight. I'll tell you why this is huge. Because, as it turns out, the most common charge of the critics against Ellen White has everything to do with inspiration. How did God inspire the prophet? I want you to see this. I want you to see it a little more clearly than you've already seen it. Take out your study guide. Let's do that first. Get out your study guide. I want to write the steps down that Solomon is noting here. Take out your study guide, please. And we'll jot these steps down. This is a key piece. What about the critics? All right. We'll let them come front and center in just a moment. But first, a little Bible teaching that I need you to see. Take out your study guide. Come on, ushers. Let's go. Ushers, 
All right, let's go. Hold your hand up. You, this is a study guide that you'll want to have. It has information on the front and the back side. You want this one. Hold your hand up all the way into the balcony. If you're, uh, if you're watching over in the overflow right now, make sure you get this study guide. I want you to have it. This is for you to keep. You take it home. You reflect on it. See what you think. And by the way, those of you who are watching on television, we're glad to have you. You might be watching on a screen right now. You might be watching on our Campus Ministries website. If you are, you can get the same study guide. Go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. Our website, there you see it now, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. You're looking for a series. The series is entitled The Gift. We're moving near the, to the end of the series. Today happens to be part eight of The Gift. And for, uh, since two weeks ago, we have moved into a, to an examination, a prayerful examination of the life ministry of Ellen White. Today's teaching... Ellen White, but what about the critics? I've already mentioned it several times. But you, you want to look for that title because underneath it says study guide. Click on the study guide. You'll have front and back the, the identical study guide we have here. You're going to want the study guide. Trust me. Go to the website and get it. All right, let's fill that study guide in. But I want to read this one more time so that it sinks in what we're reading. Ecclesiastes 12. Let's pick it up again. Verse 9. And moreover, because the preacher, Solomon says, because... Look, I don't want to say I, I am wise, but he says so he puts it in the, in the third person. But because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. My point is I've got to get God's knowledge to the people. So how did you do that? He pondered and sought out and set in order, the, the NIV reads, and arranged many Proverbs. He's gathering Proverbs from all over the place. And then what did you do with the Proverbs? Verse 10. And then the preacher sought to find acceptable words. So now he has to bring his, his vocabulary to bear. What shall I say about these Proverbs? And then what's the end product? And what was written was upright words of truth. Amazing. So jot it down, will you please? Here's one of the ways divine inspiration works. Number one, in an effort to teach the people. That's step number one. Get that down. In an effort to teach the people. Divine instruction in an effort to teach the people. Number two, the inspired one gathers together his sources. That's what Solomon is doing. He looks, he researches, he reads. It's human research, it's human reading. He gathers his sources together so that, number three, he's able to grapple to find acceptable words. Now human vocabulary is being introduced into this divine inspiration process until finally... He communicates what will be words of truth. Isn't that amazing? Words of truth. A very human process. Divine human. It's together. God leads a human instrument who searches, studies, researches, brings the sources together, turns it into His language, but that language then becomes the Word, the Word of truth. Which, by the way, is exactly how Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Because as it, as it turns out, he's not the only one who wrote the Proverbs. We read it and it says the Proverbs of Solomon. Hallelujah. This is, from, this is from Solomon. No, his name is on it, but it's not all his. He has gone to other sources and brought other sources into his writing, never giving them credit. He just he, he gives credit in a couple places, as I'll show you in just a moment. But he draws the sources together. And then the book comes out and we say it's the Proverbs. these are the Proverbs of Solomon. Notice the different sources. You have this in your study guide. Number one, of course, they're the words of Solomon. Chapters 1 through 22, chapters 25 to 29. That's all King Solomon. But now, in chapter 22, interesting, we come upon the words of what is called the wise one. Who is it? Scholars now have discovered that that material has striking parallels, would you jot this down please, with the Egyptian book, the wisdom of Amene. Mope. All right? 
scholars now see he went to a pagan source, actually. Pulled in what was valid and embraced it in his inspired document, the Proverbs. Then there's some words of, an un, of unnamed wise men, a circle. That's the shortest little section within Proverbs. Then there are the words of Agur, and he does identify this source, chapter 30, and then King Lemuel. We have no idea who these people are, but he has brought, they have brought the collection, the sources together. Now, here's the, here's, here's the point. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? God uses a pagan source for some of the material in Solomon's inspired book of the Bible, the Proverbs. Now, how does this work? Look at this. We read this last week. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Would you jot it down, please? All Scripture. The New Testament is clear. And it's talking about only the Old Testament at the time. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. What's going on here? Ladies and gentlemen, keep your pen moving. Apparently, divine inspiration allows for the inspired writer or prophet to consult and quote non-inspired sources for his divine revelation without giving credit to his sources. Apparently, that works in the divine process of inspiration. Isn't that amazing? The reason I bring this up at all is because that is precisely the most repeated charge the critics have leveled against Ellen White, charging her with blatant plagiarism and the use of other sources with the intent to deceive her readers by not giving credit to those sources, just like Solomon did. By the way, just like John did. Did you know that? John the Revelator? Jot this down, will you? John the Revelator actually borrowed multiple lines from a non-inspired source and quoted them as if they were his own words. Did you know that? Keep your pen moving. What is more, he borrowed the non-inspired author's words for some of his I saw declarations. In other words, he's in vision. What he saw in vision, he uses the words of a non-inspired author to describe what he saw. Isn't that amazing? The book, of John, the book of Revelation, John repeatedly borrows, you know what, from what book? The book of Enoch, or first Enoch. A hundred years before John wrote, Enoch was written. It's part of what's called the pseudopigrapha, the false writings. He quotes from the false writings in Revelation. Here are some examples. They're in your study guide, but put them on the screen for those of you uh, watching. This is first Enoch, chapter 40, verse 1. Notice the similarity of language. This is Enoch. After I saw, after that I saw a multitude beyond number and reckoning who stood before the Lord of the spirits. Now see if the language is familiar. A hundred years later, Revelation 7 verse 9. After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number standing before the throne. Of course, they're parallel. Take a look at this one. Enoch, 1 Enoch chapter 86, verse 1, And I saw, and behold, a star fell from heaven. Now, does this sound familiar with uh, Revelation chapter 9, verse 1? And I saw a star fallen from heaven. One list I have, would you jot this down, please? Shows 22 lines from the book of Enoch that John borrowed in order to write Revelation all without credit. So, shall we declare John to be a plagiarist and an uninspired prophet? Would we dare? But of course not. And yet, when Ellen White, isn't this amazing? When Ellen White does the same, the critics rise up with a howl of foul. When, like Solomon, 
She borrows from non-inspired literary sources and sometimes, like John, uses those sources to describe her I saw statements. Isn't that something? The problem with the critics, and I'm going to say this as gently as I can, and if they were sitting right here, I would say this. The problem with the critics, and by the way, I went to one of their websites this last week. I don't hang around those sites, but I thought I'd check it out. I went to that website. And oh my, with such righteous indignation and fervor, this particular critic went after, went after Ellen White for doing precisely what Solomon and John did in their books. Here's the problem with the critics. They have an uninformed and unbiblical understanding of divine inspiration. That's the problem. And that's why they're caught in their conundrum. What's the biblical concept of inspiration look like? Let me share this with you. Judd Lake. I like the way he does this. He's a professor in the School of Religion at Southern Adventist University. He describes the Bible model of inspiration and he calls it, and by the way, this is in his new book, Ellen White Under Fire, Identifying the Mistakes of Her Critics. Okay? So he, he calls it the whole person inspiration. In fact, you have to write it down. I'll put it on the screen for you. you. Fill it in, please. The whole person model. Fill that in. The whole person model of inspiration recognizes numerous modes through which the Spirit of God worked with human beings to produce Scripture. He talks about the, the mode of theophany. You know what a theophany is? It's when God shows up. That would be the burning bush. Moses with the burning bush. God doesn't use it. There's nothing between. I'm here and I'm talking to you. So that's the appearance of God. He talks about the prophetic mode, which is like Daniel and John, shown a vision, and then they they write it down, just what they've been shown. There's what he calls the the verbal method. God meets Moses on top of the mountain, and boom, he personally speaks the Ten Commandments, and then with his own finger, he carves it. I mean, that is direct. There's the poetic, that would be the Psalms, there's the wisdom model, which we just looked at. with with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so on. But now, here's what Judd Lake is describing. Keep reading here. One of these modes, relevant to the issue of literary borrowing, because that's what we're examining, that's the critic's charge, one of these modes is that of historical research. In this mode, the biblical author produced inspired writings independent of dreams and visions. He received information through research. Reading, studying, compiling, editing material from various documents, that would be literary borrowing, generated by both inspired and uninspired authors. Nevertheless, key point, God was providentially present and he was supervising the entire process, end quote. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what happened with the Gospel of Luke. Luke tells us right at the beginning, hey, by the way, I've studied all the histories and now I'm writing a story. That's how he did it in the book of Acts. That's what, that's what Solomon did. That's what John did. That's what Paul did in quoting non-inspired sources Weaving them in without giving any credit at all. Just weaving them in. By the way, that's how Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels. They borrowed heavily from Mark's Gospel and never said a word. That's how the whole person model of inspiration worked with the Bible writers. And I believe, we as Seventh-day Adventists believe that that is indeed how it worked with Ellen White. We believe she experienced divine inspiration in the same manner and to the same degree as the biblical writers did. Does that mean we grant to her the same authority as the Bible? No, it does not. I'll get to that in just a moment. Let's get back to the critics. So how do the critics respond to this? 
Well, while they, while they might grudgingly accept the obvious fact, you, you just, it's just obvious. Scholarship has shown the obvious fact that the Bible prophets and writers utilized extra-biblical, non-inspired literary sources for some of their writings. The critics are still quick to assert that Ellen White used way more than they did, so she's a plagiarist. Let's check that argument out. I'm going to go to Tim Poirier from the Ellen White estate. Put his words on the screen, Tim Poirier. The rebuttal from Ellen White's opponents to this comparison is that the quantity of copying is higher in her writings than among the Bible writers. But the amount of borrowing borrowing is irrelevant to the question of whether inspired writers may legitimately use the language of other authors, including extra-biblical sources. Once it is recognized that inspiration is not negated by the use of pre-existing human sources, who's to say what percentage of an inspired messenger's language must be free from such dependency? End quote. Logically, he makes the point. We've already seen from Ecclesiastes that's how it operates in some occasions. So here's the question. How much... Come on, let's put the hard question. How much of Ellen White's writings were borrowed? It's a good question. It's a fair question. Researcher Fred Veltman spent eight years examining her writings to ascertain the level of literary borrowing, and he wrote the following conclusion. I'll put it on the screen for you. A fair assessment of the evidence should not deny or underplay the degree of her dependence, but neither should it overlook or depreciate her independence. And I like this line. The sources were her slaves, never her master. You get the point? The sources don't dictate to her what to write. They were her slaves. She worked the sources. I'll tell you what. As I have reviewed Ellen White's life ministry, what is amazing to me is not what she borrowed. It's what she left out. And that's the key. John borrowed, but it's what he left out. Somebody is coaching Solomon what to take in and what to leave out. How did Ellen White know? From the same somebody the mighty third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit Himself. That's how the process works. It's a whole person model of inspiration. You read the critics, I tell you what, you'll hear that, I saw this, 80 to 90% of her material was borrowed. 80 to 90%. Are you serious? Oh, they are. Listen to this. Tim Poirier found these numbers grossly inflated, and I'll, I'll just share some of the numbers with you. Great Controversy, all right? I'll say more about Great Controversy before this series ends in just a few weeks. Great Controversy contains 15.1% source-indicated quotations and another 5.1% of uncredited quotations total, 20.5%. All right, one-fifth from historians, as we'll note in just a moment. Sketches from the life of Paul, 12.23% borrowed material. Steps to Christ, 6.2%. All other books, excluding Desire of Ages, all other books were 3% or less of borrowed material. In fact, let's let Ellen White tell us about her borrowing, because she does. This is in her introduction to the apocalyptic classic, The Great Controversy. She describes her literary borrowing. Put the words on the screen for you. The great events, talking about the history of the Protestant, I mean, the history of Christianity. The great events which have marked the progress of reform in past ages 
are matters of history, well-known, universally acknowledged by the Protestant world. They are facts which none can gainsay. In some cases now, where a historian has so grouped together events as to afford, in brief, a comprehensive view of the subject, or has summarized details in a convenient manner, his words have been quoted. But in some instances, no specific credit has been given since the quotations are not given for the purpose of citing that author as an authority, but because his statement affords a ready and forcible presentation of the subject. Now, in narrating the experience and views of those carrying forward the work of reform in our own time, similar use has been made of their published works, end quote. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's just be honest and right up front here. Today, Using material from any author without crediting the source or without inserting quotation marks would get you thrown out of any university class on this campus, presto, pronto. Isn't that right? It is clear today that when you use someone else's material in your writing, you are to give credit to whom credit is due. But it was not so in the 19th century. In fact, let me, let, me, let, let me share this. Mark Twain, you remember Mark Twain, the American humorist? Mark Twain exclaimed, wondering out loud if there was, quote, anything in any human utterance, oral or written, except plagiarism. It's all borrowed, he said. Which tells you maybe about where he got some of his stories. Denny Fortin, dean of our theological seminary here on the campus of Andrews University, and... Uh, Jerry Moon, professor of church history, have written a piece on plagiarism and literary borrowing for the upcoming Ellen G. White Encyclopedia. It's supposed to come out this, by the end of the year. Let me put their words on the screen. The practice of borrowing from other authors without giving explicit or detailed credit was widespread among writers of the 18th and 19th centuries. Although by today's literary standards this practice is unacceptable, we're all agreed on that, it forms the historical context of Ellen White's own practice. Now notice, such a practice was followed by example, for example, by John Wesley, the founder of the church, the Methodist church that she grew up in. Such a practice was followed by John Wesley in writing his book, Explanatory Notes Upon the New Testament. Now listen, this, this is Wesley now. We're quoting Wesley. It was a doubt with me for some time, he wrote in the preface, whether I should not subjoin to every note I received from them the name of the author from whom it was taken. But upon further consideration, I resolved to name none. I'm not going to give one source that nothing might divert the mind of the reader from keeping close to the point of view and receiving what, is, what was spoken only for its own intrinsic value. End quote. Now, Denny and Jerry, they put their finger right on the nub. They touch it right here. Their words on the screen again. The real issue, however, is not whether she borrowed without giving proper credit, but whether she borrowed in such a way as to deceive the reader. She has been accused of being a thief, a liar, and an exploiter of church members who constituted a captive market for her books. End quote. So we, got, we, we, we have to ask the question. Did she intend to deceive her readers? Fair question. In the Great Controversy, for example, Ellen White borrowed extensively from Daubigny's History of the Re of Reformation, Wiley's History of the Waldenses, J. and Andrew's History of the Sabbath, Uriah Smith's The Sanctuary and Its Cleansing, even her own husband James White's book, The Life of William Miller. These, these works were known, familiar to her Adventist readers. 
In fact, in, in the Christmas season, 1882, she wrote a piece for the church journal, the Review and Herald, in which, get this, she urges her readers to purchase Daubigny's History of the Reformation for its inspiration, and she went on, so that it might provide, quote, something to be read during these long winter evenings. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let's just get this straight. If you're a plagiarist, the last book you want your readers to read is the book you're plagiarizing. Would that not be true? Of course. But she urges them to go out and buy the book. You'll be blessed by it, she says. Here's another one. 1883. Six months before she comes out with her book, Sketches from the Life of Paul. An advertisement for Coney Bear and Housen's book, The Life of St. Paul. And by the way, a book Danny Fortin and Jerry Moon tell us significantly influenced her own book with 12% of her book estimated to be borrowed from Coney Bear and Housen. An ad appears six months before her book comes out on the life of Paul. An ad appears in Science of the Times magazine with her endorsement of their book. These are her words now in the ad. I regard this book as a book of great merit and one of rare usefulness to the earnest student of the New Testament history. End quote. I repeat, if you are a plagiarist, the last book you want your readers to be reading is the book you're plagiarizing. But they did not consider it plagiarizing back then. A Roman Catholic attorney was assigned the case to examine. Was Ellen White faithful to the prevailing law in the 19th century regarding plagiarizing, copyright infringement, patent infringement, and so on? 1981, here we go now. The legal aspect of this charge that she plagiarized was examined by Roman Catholic attorney Vincent Ramick, a specialized, a specialist rather in patent, trademark, and copyright law in the Washington, D.C. law firm Diller, Ramick, and White. He released his 27-page legal opinion in August of that year after spending over 300 hours researching about 1,000 relevant cases in American legal history. Now, here comes the attorney's conclusions. 27-page brief. We'll put it on the screen. Here are some of the conclusions. Based upon our review, Attorney Raymond, based upon our review of the facts and legal precedents, Ellen White was not a plagiarist and her works did not constitute copyright infringement or piracy. Here's another conclusion. It is impossible to imagine that the intention of Ellen G. White, as reflected in her writings and the unquestionably prodigious effort involved therein, was anything other than a sincerely motivated and unselfish effort to place the understanding of biblical truths in a coherent form for all to see and comprehend. One more. Considering all factors necessary in reaching a just conclusion on this issue, it is submitted that the writings of Ellen G. White were conclusively unplagiaristic. End quote. All right, all right. So she wasn't a plagiarist. But the problem with you, Adventists, is you have elevated her writings to be right there, equal with Holy Scripture. Oh, really? Says who? I'll tell you who it says. You can find that anywhere, anywhere at all. It is one of the trumped-up charges that the critics cannot substantiate. I tell you what, the church I grew up in and the church I now serve there is absolutely no question 
on the superlative authority, prime authority of Holy Scripture for the life of this church and the revelation of God's truth. In fact, our fundamental belief 18, let me put this on the screen for you, fundamental belief 18, the Bible is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Ellen White herself constantly reiterated this point. Jot it down, will you please? This is from that, that, uh, that beautiful book on the, on the parables of Jesus, Christ's Object Lessons. Jot this down. He, Christ, taught that the Word of God was to be understood by all He pointed to the Scriptures as of unquestionable authority, and we should do the same. The Bible is to be presented as the Word of the infinite God, jot this down, as the end of all controversy. Do you know what that means, the end of all controversy? That means the last word, any debate, last word, Holy Scripture. It is to be presented as the end of all controversy and the foundation of all faith. Do you know what that means? Bottom line, bottom line, Holy Scripture, bottom line. Last word. Wow. Oh, well then, Dwight, that, that, that must indicate she has no authority in your church. Oh, my friend, you are wrong there as well. She has plenty of authority. Trust me. Let's illustrate it this way. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, you remember that the familiar Bible story? All right. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, what was the Bible in existence at that time? It was five books long. It was the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. Okay? So, when the prophet Nathan came striding into that throne room and pointed his bony finger at the king and cried out, You are the man. Trust me. Not for one split second did David question the prophet's authority. David did not retort, Listen, Nate, you don't have any books in the Bible, so I don't need to acknowledge your authority. Are you kidding? On the spot. He breaks down in tears before the prophet of God and confesses, you're absolutely right. Jot it down, will you? Nathan was a non-canonical prophet, but he had plenty of spiritual authority. Trust me. But let's let's let the illustration keep going. So let's say that tomorrow, tomorrow archaeologists find the book of Nathan. Yeah, First Chron- Chronicles 29, 29, Nathan actually wrote a book. It never ended up in the Bible. But tomorrow they find it. Hallelujah. Question. Would that newly discovered and inspired book become a part of our Bible canon? No way. Look at the words of Gerhard Fondel. No, no, no. It would remain... They found the, if, they, if they find the book of Nathan tomorrow, it would remain an inspired book outside of the canon. And if a theological statement were found in the book, it would remain an inspired and authoritative statement outside the canon. Outside the canon. So it is with the writings of Ellen White. Inspired like the ancient prophets? Absolutely. Canonical like the ancient prophets? Not at all. Authoritative like the ancient prophets? But of course. I love the way Merlin Burt puts it. Director of the Center for Adventist Research here on campus at Andrews University. Put it on the screen. You need to fill it in. The quality. I like this distinction. The quality of inspiration in her writings is the same as that of Bible prophets. But the purpose is different. What was her purpose? Uh, Her purpose, he goes on. She expressed that her messages were for the purpose of leading people to the Bible, to testify to the centrality and primacy of the Bible. She wrote, 
These are her words now. I have a work of great responsibility to do to impart by pen and voice the instruction given, given me, not alone to Seventh-day Adventists, but to the world. I have published many books, large and small, and some of these have been translated into several languages. This is my work, to open the Scripture to others as God has opened them to me. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the critics' inability to differentiate between inspiration and authority that causes their utter confusion and their baseless charges that Seventh-day Adventists uphold the writings of Ellen White on an equal par with Holy Scripture. We do not. In fact, in 1982, a document titled The Seventh-day Adventist Church's Understanding of Ellen White's Authority was published. Included in this document are ten affirmations and ten denials I'd like to close by reading those with you. They're there on your study guide. Well, then I'll show you a video clip. All right? Ten and ten. Get you, if you didn't uh, have your study guide in front of you, just pull it out. I want to read these with you. All right? Those of you on, uh, watching on, on uh, television, you can get this study guide. It's all there. Check it out for yourself. Okay, this is the Seventh-day Adventist Church's understanding of Ellen White's authority. Here are the affirmations. Number one, we believe that... Scripture is the divinely revealed Word of God and is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Number two, we believe that the canon of Scripture is composed only of the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. Number three, we believe that Scripture is the foundation of faith and the final authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. Number four, we believe that Scripture is the Word of God in human language. Number five, we believe that Scripture teaches that the gift of prophecy will be manifest in the Christian church after New Testament times. Number six, we believe that the ministry and writings of Ellen White were a manifestation of the gift of prophecy. Number seven, we we believe that Ellen White was inspired by the Holy Spirit and that her writings, the product of that inspiration, are applicable and authoritative, especially to Seventh-day Adventists. Number eight, we believe that the purposes of the Ellen White writings include guidance in understanding the teaching of Scripture and application of these teachings with prophetic urgency to the spiritual and moral life. Number nine, we believe that the acceptance of the prophetic gift of Ellen White is important to the nurture and unity of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And finally, number ten, we believe that Ellen White's use of literary sources and assistance finds parallels in some of the writings of the Bible. Now, quick on the heels come these ten denials. Number one, we do not believe that the quality or degree of inspiration in the writings of Ellen White is different from that of Scripture. Number two, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are an addition to the canon of sacred Scripture. Number three, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White function as the foundation and final authority of Christian faith as the Scripture. Number four, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White may be used as the basis of doctrine. Number five, we do not believe that the study of the writings of Ellen White may be used to replace the study of Scripture. Number six, we do not believe that the Scripture can be understood only through the writings of Ellen White. Number seven, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White exhaust the meaning of Scripture. Number eight, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are essential for the proclamation of the truths of Scripture to society at large. Number nine, we do not believe that the writings of Ellen White are the product of mere Christian piety. And finally, number ten, we do not believe that Ellen White's use of literary sources and assistance negates the inspiration of her writings. We conclude, now notice the words, we conclude therefore that a correct understanding of the inspiration and authority of the writings of Ellen White will avoid two extremes. Extreme number one, regarding these writings as functioning on a canonical level identical with Scripture, 
or extreme number two, considering them as ordinary Christian literature. End quote. So what's up with these critics? What's the point? Listen carefully now. Anybody who has the time, anybody who has the time and the resources to, to invest in researching can just as conclusively answer every other charge leveled by the critics. This isn't rocket science. You can do the same. Two charges we've just responded to and dealt with. By the way, my friend Judd Lake has a website. You jot this down, will you? I guess it's in your study guide. Those of you listening, jot this website down. It's a very helpful website. Put it on the screen for you. www.ellenwhiteanswers. One word, ellenwhiteanswers.org. Cogent, clear, uncluttered, straight to the point. You'll be blessed, as I was. There's another website, our church's official Ellen White site. It's www.whiteestate.org. I want to say to my graduate friend who wrote me the letter, if you're listening right now, you're watching right now, you go to those websites. You take what you heard and learned today. You go to that website. You'll be fine. You will be fine. What did we read last week in First First Thessalonians chapter 5? Oh, my. I'm so excited we're at the end. (laughs) What did we read last week in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19? Test all things. Hold to what is good, for by their fruits, oh, I love this, for by their fruits, you'll know. Trust me, Jesus is right. By their fruits, you'll know the truth. You will know the truth. So, here's that video clip. One of my heroes, as a young minister growing up, was a godly biblical scholar and teacher named H.M.S. Richards Sr. Great man. He preached at my ordination service. I was so awed, I went up to him afterwards and I had my preaching Bible, which was the RSV back then. And I went up to this godly elderly man and I asked him if he would mind signing my preaching Bible. And so he held it up close to his eyes. His glasses were as thick as the bottom of a Coke bottle. And he, he scribbled his signature. And then underneath his signature, he wrote a Bible reference. 1 Corinthians 2.2. Do you know what that reads? I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In fact, I took a hot soldering iron and right here where I stand every Sabbath into the wood, I wrote the very letters HMS Richards wrote in my Bible, 1 Corinthians 2, 2. The foot of the cross. So imagine my surprise just a few days ago. No kid. I found out... HMS Richards is on YouTube. Now, how did that happen? (laughs) I want to show you. I want to show you his recollection. When as a 15-year-old boy, he heard Ellen White preach and he heard her pray. It's much later in his life, as you'll see when you see him on the screen. Here is HMS Richards himself. Yes, I knew Sister White in this way. I heard her preach once. And Sar, of course. It was in Boulder, Colorado, at the camp meeting in 1909, in a building with an iron roof right at the base of the Red Rocks there. It's on the campus of the University of Colorado. 
And uh, she was there. I suppose there were 200 Adventists and maybe uh, the rest of 1,000 people or 800 people were just people of the town, people of various denominations and wanted to see the Adventist prophet. I can remember when she came on the grounds in a surrey drawn by two horses and Willie White, her son, was with her and Miss McIntyre, her, her companion and nurse. And the meeting that night, she preached to us. I was sitting at her left hand about, oh, 15 feet from her. could see her plainly, of course, right there. platform was about a foot, foot and a half high. And she had this big, thick Bible. She was preaching faithfully, giving God's message. And uh, I, I was interested. It was interesting. She was just a dear, sweet Christian mother or grandmother telling us what we ought to do. Just as she started to talk to finish off, it started to rain on that iron roof, and you can imagine. Now, remember, no amplifiers in those days, except you carried your amplifier with you. And she's had a regular preaching voice, and you know, from this, from this conversational tone or voice that she'd been using, she went into her real preaching voice. And you could hear her voice just like a silver bell right through all of that confusion caused by that rain. She could talk right through the rain noise. And then she talked just about a minute, and then she kneeled down to pray. She told her son, I must pray for us. And she came over on my side of the platform and kneeled down to pray. I can hear her now. She said, not our father, but oh, my father. And from that moment on, it was a personal communion between her and the Heavenly Father. In just a minute or two, there seemed to be a mighty power come over that meeting. And I felt it. I was just a, just a boy. and I was a member of the church. I'd been baptized about a year and a half before. And I could feel that power until finally I, I was afraid to look up for fear I'd see God standing right there. She was talking with him. She'd forgotten all about us. And she was in the presence of the Lord. And... A minute or two more went by, and that whole crowd, you could hear them weeping, crying over their sin. A tremendous revival, really. Spiritual revival, that mighty power of God. When she preached, God blessed her as a preacher. But when she began to pray, he honored her as his prophet before the people. I'll never forget it. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Ladies and gentlemen, what, what was it that Jesus said? By their fruits, you will know them. I have, made, I, I have shared this with you before. I am honored to testify to it again. I have read a lot of books in my lifetime. Many, many authors. But I stand before you today to tell you that I have never in my life read from an author who so moved my own heart to long to go deeper and deeper with Jesus. By their fruits. Hey guys, that's how it works. By their fruits. The mockery and venom of the website on the one hand and the passionate devotion to Jesus on the other hand. By their fruits. I rest my case by their fruits. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free.
I believe that with all my heart. When you know the truth, it will set you free. I want you to stand with me. Sing it one more time, that chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So, Father, that's all we ask. That you will keep our eyes on Jesus. This is a bitter, bitter season in earth's history. We're nearing the end of time. And, oh God, now more than ever, the gift, the gift that will point us to Jesus. Lock our eyes on our Savior, I pray, until He comes. Amen.